If you please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. This morning we will seek to unpack verses 12 through 14. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient, authoritative, efficacious word. Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our loving Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The book of Romans is an inspired handbook of Christian discipleship. It's an inspired handbook of Christian discipleship. It's a a primary textbook in the school of Christ. Better yet, in light of our passage for this morning, it's a field manual for Christian soldiers. It's a field manual for Christian soldiers. It teaches Christians on the spiritual battlefield who they once were in Adam, who they are presently in Christ, and how they've been set free to serve and to glorify God. Once again, it teaches Christians, Romans teaches Christians, on the spiritual battlefield, which we all are on, who they once were in Adam, who they presently are in Christ, and how they've been set free to serve and to glorify God. Sadly, we sometimes lose sight of this truth. We forget who we are as Christians. We forget ourselves. We forget what God has done for us and to us in Christ. And then we give ourselves to that which we've been delivered from. You see, the Apostle Paul knows that sometimes believers get what I call spiritual amnesia spiritual amnesia. That is a kind of temporary memory loss about their new identity in Christ and the implications of that new identity. The fog of spiritual battles and temptations and all the distractions of life, we sometimes forget who our Lord and Commander is, which, of course, greatly affects the way in which we live. Indeed, rather than present ourselves to God as those who have been made alive in Christ and who offer ourselves as instruments for righteousness, we present ourselves to sin and we obey its lusts and passions and offer our members, that is ourselves, as instruments of unrighteousness. Rather than live under the reign and freedom of grace in Christ, 
We live as if we are still under the reign and bondage of sin. Here is Christ Church. This is of primary importance for your Christian lives. Paul is exhorting God's redeemed people. He is exhorting us, you and me, to be who you are. Be who you are. To live out the reality of your union with Christ. To live out the reality of your union with Christ. He says, Paul says, in effect, quote, Dear child of God, You've been set free from sin's dominion, so don't live like you're still under its tyrannic rule. Again, dear child of God, you've been set free from sin's dominion, so don't live like you're still under sin's tyrannic rule. It's something we all need to hear, isn't it? We all need to hear this. Oh, how we need to be taught and reminded again and again that we are united to the crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Christ. That we are united to the living Christ by faith and therefore are new creatures in Him. The old has gone. The new has come. The old realm of sin, death, and judgment for Christians is gone. And we've been brought under a new realm and sphere and dominion of grace and life and salvation in Christ. This is what Paul is is teaching us. He's teaching us who we are. And here in this text, he's saying, therefore, live out who you are. Don't live out who you are not. We are thus, in Christ, no longer slaves to sin, but rather we've been set free from its power and its reign so that we would glorify, obey, and enjoy God in this life and forever. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to what? Enjoy Him forever. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is right when he says this, quote, The New Testament always presents this doctrine of holiness and sanctification by reminding us of who we are and what we are. Of who we are and what we are. It always, uh, you'll notice that, that in the scriptures we have both the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives teach us who we are, who we are in our natural selves, who we are delivered from our natural selves, who we are in Christ. The indicatives, this is who you are. This is who God has saved you to be. And then we have the imperatives. Now live in this way. This is who you are, indicative. This is how you are called to live, imperative. We see this coming out here, and we'll see it coming out again and again and again. And in our text for this morning, we'll see and learn that Paul employs here military metaphors to make his point. He employs military metaphors to make his point. Of course, he does so in several other places as well, not least in Ephesians 6, where he exhorts us to put on 
what? The armor of God. The whole armor of God. Well, if you're taking notes, there are three exhortations that we are going to consider uh, this morning. This, this outline comes directly from uh, the text. If you're taking notes, here they are. Let not sin reign. That's the first exhortation. Let not sin reign. Secondly, do not report to sin or present yourself to sin. Do not report to sin. And the third one is this. Report to God. Report to God. Again, this is military language that's being used in this text, and we'll see uh, how it is as such in a few moments. Let not sin reign. This is the first exhortation that is given. Look with me again at verse 12 of our text. Quote, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, its appetites, its lusts. This is the way that our world lives in Adam under the domain of sin and death, obeying passions. How can something be wrong when it feels so right? If I feel that I'm a certain way or a certain gender, and I find myself out of accord with that, I must then declare it to be something different. I'm going to go with my feelings. If, if, if my lusts and my desires and my passions are for this over here, then I should give in to them because every commercial is telling me to. Hollywood and all of its messages are telling me over and over and over again, if you feel that it's right and you desire such and that's what will make you happy and center you in life, then give in to those lusts and those desires. But look what Paul says here. The church, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its Passions. We have a, a kind of personification of sin here. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The word therefore here uh, underscores that these verses are an application of the doctrine that Paul has already been unpacking in the previous chapters. And you remember the foundational verses in chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, where the apostle explains that Adam, that Adam, the first man created, that he was a federal representative of all humanity, so that when he gave into temptation and fell into sin and lost original righteousness with which he was created with him, we all fell in him. It's Paul's whole point, isn't it? In other words, what was true of Adam is true of us. We are not sinners merely because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Born without original righteousness and born with original sin, inherited from Adam. What is true of Adam is true of us in our natural selves, in our natural state, in our natural condition. Paul 
makes this point over and over and over and over again in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Look with me there. Chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin. And so death then spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.15, many died through one man's trespass. Romans 5.17, in case we didn't get it, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Chapter 5, verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Adam is the federal representative of all of humanity. And if he were to live out his days or this probationary period, we don't know how long uh, it, it was or that God ordained it to be, but we know that he failed to obey. Adam was created with original righteousness and he had the capacity to, to continue in perfect personal obedience or to sin and rather continue in perfect and personal obedience created in God's original righteousness. He gave into temptation and sinned. And we all sinned in him because he was our federal head. So here we get the picture. All of humanity, whether Jew or Greek, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, all are united to Adam. We all have the same first parent. And it's union, it's a union with Adam that brings sin, death, separation from God, and just judgment. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God's word also teaches us in these very same verses that another federal representative came on the scene. Sin, death, and judgment in Adam would not have the last word. Amen? Adam brought us all into the realm of sin death, depravity, and judgment. It is why the world is as it is today. It's why we read headlines of horrible acts of murder. It's why we read about the sex trade and, and pornography and, and all of these horrendous things that are going on in the world. Because the world is under Satan's power. We see it. It's just, it's just not hard to prove the sinfulness and the wickedness and depravity of man. It's just not hard. It's interesting. We're hearing less and less language like we did maybe in the, 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 the 40s and 50s and, and maybe a few years after. Of You know, we're all essentially good inside. We just need to all get together in one room and talk it through. Because deep down, we're all just really good people. But you see, not only does the Bible contradict such foolishness, what we see and hear every day contradicts this. So the world is captured by sin and death and judgment in Adam but it would not have the last word. No, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 15, quote, 
Look, look, look with me there, chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And again in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous by grace through faith. This means that if we are united to Christ by faith, we are no longer under the reign of sin and death and judgment in Adam. We don't need to wake up fearful of the judgment. Because we are in Christ. These things no longer hold power over us. It's why we can face death without fear. Because death is just a, a, a moment in time where we, our, our, our heart stops and we enter into the presence of our Savior. We will not know the second death if we are in Christ. We are no longer under the dominion and power of sin. We are set free in Christ. United to Christ, we have been delivered from the tyrannical reign of sin, death, and judgment because Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the debt of our sins and He bore God's righteous judgment in our place. And in Him, we have died to sin and we live in Him, for Him. Such good news. Such good news. This is why at the outset of this chapter, Paul bats away the antinomian impulse of, of many that, that, Christians, that many Christians can live in. To live in sin and to have a casual view of sin because when sin abounds, they say, grace abounds all the more. The idea, this idea for Paul is ludicrous. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? If we are no longer under the dominion of sin and death and judgment, and we are now under the dominion and rule of grace and life and salvation in Christ, in union with Christ, how can we still live in sin? Because we've died to that sin. It no longer reigns over us. But here's what we must remember. What we considered in Sunday school this morning in question 78 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which I'll encourage you to consider this afternoon. Here's what we must remember. While sin no longer reigns in us and over us, it still remains in us the vestiges of sin. I mentioned this morning in Sunday school that when we went into Iraq, we quickly dominated and removed Saddam Hussein from his palace. We took over the country, essentially, in a matter of weeks. But then we know that there were insurgents and, and skirmishes and fights and battles going on all over the place. And so it is true that when we are set free and delivered from, from this bondage and domain of, of sin and death and judgment and brought into union with Christ, that 
that sin no longer reigns in us and over us. And we are in Christ, but this side of heaven, sin, the vestiges of sin still remain in us. The remnants and vestiges of sin still exist in these fallen bodies. And while we taste and experience the age to come, the age to come is not here yet in full. We taste of the age to come here. It's that joy we experience when we are together and singing God's praise and and hearing God's truth preached and coming to the Lord's table and witnessing baptisms and remembering our own baptisms. And as we gather together midweek with fellow believers and talk about the Lord and what He's doing in our lives, and we, we taste that glory and we long for it because we long for the fullness of it. We live between the times, between the two comings of Christ. We live in what theologians call the now and the not yet of our salvation. Now, united to Christ and experiencing all the glorious spiritual benefits of that union, but not yet experiencing these benefits in full. But one day we will, hallelujah, one day we will experience these benefits in full, When Christ returns and we are given new bodies and sin is completely eradicated from our lives and we will have unrestricted, unmediated fellowship with God forever. For now, we will continue to experience the sinful impulses of our fallen flesh and the glittery and seductive temptations of this world will, will allure us and draw us. But Paul wants us to remember that we are not in bondage to these things anymore. We are united to Christ. We are new creations in Him. We have begun to experience heaven here on earth, filled with the Holy Spirit, strengthened, nourished, and comforted by the means of grace and encouraged by the fellowship of the church. In Westminster Larger Catechism, question 83, it deals with some of these concepts of the intersecting of of eternity with time and our experience as Christians here on earth. Question 83, what is the communion in glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life. Let me read that again. What is the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life? The invisible church, of course, are those who are truly believers. What is that communion that we have? Even now, we experience the communion in glory with Christ right now on earth. But what, it, what, what shapes that? What does it look like? Answer, the members of the invisible church, that is, those who are truly united to Christ, have communicated to them, they have communicated to them in this life, the first fruits of glory with Christ. Catch that? We experience now the first fruits 
of that eternal glory in Christ. We taste it. We get a taste of that glory. It goes on. As they are members of him, their head. We are the body of Christ. He is our head, and we experience the first fruits as members with Christ as our head. And so in him are interested or have an interest in that glory which he is fully possessed of. And as an earnest, excuse me, and as an earnest thereof, or a down payment, enjoy the sense of God's love, the peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory. As, on the contrary, sense of revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments, which they shall endure after death. Judgment and salvation. So we who are in Christ are experiencing the first fruits of that glory in Christ here on earth, imperfectly, but really as we fellowship with God around the means of grace and with one another, we get a taste of that glory, and that taste just continues to grow as we grow in the Lord. But this taste is also true in another sense for the unbeliever who tastes the affliction of conscience, that torment of soul, and that lack of peace, and that lack of, of hope for the future that they will one day in full experience in hell forever and ever and ever. So, Paul writes in verse 11, Christian, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Be who you are. It's why he states in verse 12, look there with me, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, when the sinful impulses of our not yet fully sanctified minds and not yet fully sanctified hearts and not fully yet fully sanctified wills and affections arise, we must mortify them, not obey them. We do not give in. We do not salute. We mortify them. We kill those lusts and sins that emerge. We are no longer slaves to sin, so let us not let it reign over us like a tyrannical king. Again, here sin is personified as a tyrannical king. And Paul says that this wicked king has been defeated. You are no longer living in his realm or under his power, so let him not play the pretender king in your heart. You know what a pretender king is? A king who's pretending to be king. He really doesn't have the authority, but he's acting like he does. Do not let sin be a pretender king in your heart. For sin, Paul states in verse 14, will have no dominion over you. Dear ones, this brings us to the second exhortation found in our text. Do not report to sin. Look with me at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. 
Dear Christian, in light of the fact that you are no longer in Adam, but in Christ, and thus no longer under the reign and power of sin and death, but under the reign of grace and life, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. What does Paul mean here? To present our members. The word members refers to ourselves. Ourselves in all of the dimensions of the self. Our intellects, our hearts, our affections. It includes our physical bodies, every part of us. What is interesting is the Greek word Paul employs for instruments here. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but is instruments the best translation? Many believe it's not. I agree with them. A better rendering in this context is the word weapons. Weapons. Do not present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. This is how Luther translated this text, and many others have as well. The picture Paul wants his readers to get is the believer reporting to his or her commanding officer with weapons in hand. And he says, don't report to sin. Don't do that. Don't report to sin. You have died to sin. Sin no longer reigns over you or in you. And so don't report to sin and use your intellect, heart, affections, and bodies as weapons for unrighteousness, as weapons engaged on behalf of Satan's army. Hendrickson, Bible commentator, says this, quote, What Paul is saying then is this, Do not continue to put your bodily parts at the disposal of sin as weapons of wickedness. Stop doing this, and instead, right now, completely and decisively, put yourselves at God's disposal, offer yourselves to Him. Are you beginning to see Paul's gospel logic here? We must ask ourselves, how am I presenting myself? Let me back up. To whom am I presenting myself? And... How am I presenting myself and my weapons? How am I presenting myself and my weapons? Are they, am I presenting them to sin for unrighteousness? Is this what I'm doing? Am I, am I coming before sin every day and, and, and living and putting myself back under this sin? Presenting myself and my weapons to sin for unrighteousness, for sexual immorality, for pornography, for ungodly speech, for ungodly patterns of anger, for not treating my spouse with love and respect and kindness, living in some kind of secret sin, living with with idols who continue to grow more powerful and strong giving your heart and your mind and all that you are to that which is displeasing to God or in the place of God? Paul is exhorting the church to be who you are. Don't present yourselves to sin and your members as weapons for unrighteousness. But if you are, and if you have been, repent. Confess your sin 
Don't leave this room before you have repented and confessed your sin and said, Lord, help me to, to break this pattern. You have, you have freed me from this sin and I have willingly placed myself back under it. Oh, this is not how we are called to live, how we've been freed to live by the God, grace of God and His Spirit. Let us go to Christ for grace and forgiveness. And he says, come, come unto me. A smoldering wick I will not snuff out. A bruised reed I will not break. Perhaps you've never become a Christian in the first place. And that's the real root issue here. You've never known freedom from these sins because you indeed are still under the bondage and reign of those sins. My word to you this morning is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn from that which you know is displeasing to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness and his abundant grace and mercy. Receive his gift of righteousness that you would stand before God no longer condemned but justified. Today is the day of salvation. Paul doesn't just exhort us in light of our union with Christ in a negative way, don't present yourselves to sin. He says positively, present yourselves to God. This is the final exhortation. Report to God. Look at verse 13b with me. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments or weapons for righteousness. Present yourselves to God. He is your king, not sin. He is your commanding officer, not sin. So report to him. You are no longer living in Adam and under God's just condemnation and in Satan's army. You are united to Christ, the second Adam, and are thus reconciled to God and freed from the power and bondage and curse of sin. You have been made alive in him. So present yourselves to God and your members, now listen, as weapons for righteousness. Are you seeking to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ? To whom do you report when you wake up in the morning? To sin? To the lusts of the flesh? To bodily appetites or to God? From whom do you take your orders? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a great point on this text. Quote, Far too many Christians regard the Christian church merely as a clinic, a hospital, instead of realizing that it is more like a barracks. The church really is more like a barracks. Good soldiers, we are called to present ourselves to God, church, and to his eternal son, the captain of our salvation, and offer to him our members, our minds, 
our hands, our feet, our legs, every part of us, our, our intellects, our emotions, our eyes. We are offering every part of us for his glory and for righteousness sake. And when we don't, when we get spiritual amnesia, because we will all get it in this room, when we get this spiritual amnesia, we confess our sins. We repent of our sins. We mortify our sins in the flesh and abide in Christ for his steadfast grace and forgiveness. Dear ones, Paul concludes this section by reminding us of the good news that we are no longer under law. Look there with me. Look there with me. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The wrong view of this, of course, which is perpetuated amongst those who hold to a kind of antinomianism or against the lawism, the wrong view is that we no longer need the law. We no longer need to pay attention to the law. Hey, look, we're no longer under law. Let's go get drunk. Hey, look, we're no longer under the law. Let's go party. Let's go live it up. Because grace abounds when we do that. No, that's, that's, a, that's not it at all. The right view of this is that in Christ, we are no longer under the law's crushing and impossible demands to make us right with God. We are no longer under the law's crushing and impossible demands to be made right with God. We are no longer under that, that pressure of waking up in the morning and saying, okay, if I can just obey God's law perfectly, maybe God will accept me. It's that treadmill of good works that so many who even profess the name of Christ seem to be on, that you, you think you're going to be saved by your moral strivings. But you see, we've been delivered from that, beloved. We're no longer under the law. Or under the condemnation of the law. Because Christ has kept the law perfectly for us. And in him we are declared righteous. And so now the law is not given to us as, as, as that which merely shows us our depravity and condemns us in that under God. But now the law becomes a guide for the Christian life. We can say with David, oh, how I love your law. Because that law shows us how to please God. We don't obey the law to be made right with God. We've already been made right with God through Christ. And so the law of God becomes precious to us because it continues to reveal our sin and our need for the Lord, and it shows us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. But we also see here, it's not only that we're not under the law, we're under grace. We're under the realm and kingdom of grace, ruled by our nail-scarred Savior. What a blessing. We are no longer under law. The crushing demands and requirements of the law we're under grace. You are God's beloved. He sings over you in his love. He delights in you as his children. John Murray says this, quote, Grace is the sovereign will and power of God coming to expression for the deliverance of men from the servitude of sin. Be who you are. If you're a Christian, live 
in your privileges. Present yourselves to God, your loving Father, and not to sin. Using your members, using yourselves and every part of you as weapons of righteousness for the glory of God and your own growth in holiness and in service to your neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great salvation. It's so rich. It's so rich to be taught from your word the reality of who we are in Christ, set free from the reign of sin and now under your grace. Pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And even now as we sing your praise and come to your table, would you feed us and confirm to our hearts at the table what has been preached in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to please stand with me.